Hey everyone, and welcome back to Kid Lake Chronicles. This is Chelsea. And this is Hannah. On this show, we talk about kids' books, mostly the ones that we loved as kids of the early 2000s. So think Warriors, The Hobbit, Coraline, and The Princess Bride. We also read modern books and interview authors. Unfortunately, this week, it's just the two of us and our recurring guest, Andy. Because Nikki went on a trip to Las Vegas, and we haven't seen her for a while. She said she was going to stay at this cool hotel, but she's probably fine. Probably. In this episode, we are going back to the Percy Jackson series by Rick Riordan, specifically the third book, The Titan's Curse. Just a reminder, the Percy Jackson series follows the adventures of demigods trying to protect Olympus from various dangers. And in The Titan's Curse, Percy and his friends journey across the country to rescue the goddess Artemis, battle monsters along the way, and struggle against a prophecy of doom that could mean the end of the world as they know it. We talk about girl-boss feminism, romantic intrigue, and Percy's journey to becoming a good man. On the Kid Like Chronicles, we also like to talk about theme, which usually leads us into rabbit holes of serious adult topics. In this book, we dig into gender, sexuality, how they're portrayed in the text versus actual Greek myth. So if you're young enough that Artemis would accept you into her band of hunters, proceed with caution. Don't forget to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and YouTube at The Kid Lit Chronicles and at Kid Lit Chronicle on Twitter. And as always, enjoy the episode. What has everybody been reading? I don't know if this counts as reading or not, I will say, but I recently got this like murder mystery book called um, Kane's Jawbone, where all of the pages are printed out of order and you have to, and it's like a puzzle, and you have to put all the pages in the right order, um, name all six murder victims, and name all of their murderers. Whoa. And I've never felt more lost in my entire life, <laughs> but it's going well. It's going well. <laughs> That's crazy. Is it like a full length novel of pages it's it's a hundred pages um so it's like a it's like a short kind of novel i'm currently just like going through it and writing down everyone's names and like what their deal is and i usually get so few pieces of that (laughs) puzzle (laughs) because it's usually like someone's first name and then they're the husband of someone that i've never heard of before (laughs) it's yeah it's really cool though i'm loving it's like clue yeah yeah How about you, Hannah? Me? Well, not so much reading, but book-related. I recently bought a ticket to go to a talk of my favorite author, T.J. Klune. Cool. Who wrote The House in the Cerulean Sea and Under the Whispering Door. And he's a delightful author. And he's going to be in Nashville at Parnassus Books, which is an excellent bookstore with a dog. (laughs) Wow. Many dogs. Yeah, at least two dogs. (laughs) So dogs will be there, TJ Klune will be there, and I will be there. And I will get him to sign all my little books that I don't currently have because I listen to audiobooks. So <laughs> that's the plan. That's we'll go really see exciting. him in Nashville, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If this comes out before that event happens. Yeah. <laughs> and Chelsea? I recently joined a book club. Our first book was The Midnight Library by Matt Haig. Yes, Hannah's, also, Hannah's read it, and we've had many a uh, conversation because uh, it's generally well-rated, but there's some controversial points, which I won't spoil, but I would recommend reading it if you haven't yet. Okay. I'll get on it. <laughs> I've got nothing but time to listen to audiobooks <laughs> lately, so I'll get on that. Oh, yeah. And I would recommend T.J. Klune. 
And you know what else we've all been reading? What else? Percy Jackson and the Olympians and the Titan's Curse, or it is the Titan's Curse, is the third book, which we are talking about right now, which, okay, so this is our continuation of our series because we covered books one and two in our previous episodes. If you don't remember or you don't know, Percy Jackson is a YA fantasy series written by Rick Riordan. And the third book, The Titan's Curse, was published in 2007. And after this, we have two more books to go. But of course, there's like a million and one like spinoff, sequel, prequel series, I'm pretty sure. And we'll read all of them. Nope. Every single one. (laughs) Maybe we can. Every single one. (laughs) Maybe we can. Also, if you didn't catch our last episode, which you should listen to, I'll give you a little bit of summary of what we talked about. There are a lot of themes that recur in this third book, and I guess probably throughout every book, which are parent-child relationships and complicated family dynamics. We talked about Western civilization and what defines good and evil and who decides which side is really right. Because who knows if Western civilization is the right side to be on always. And also we have our recurring guest because we haven't introduced them yet. Andy, welcome back. (laughs) Thank you for having me back. I I do feel, and I've said this, I believe every single episode I've been on, but this is my favorite Percy Jackson book. And rereading it, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to stick to that, <laughs> at least for now. <laughs> I really want to ask you what parts of the book you like, but before we can do that, I have to tell you what the book is about, or we have to tell you what the book is about through Hopefully. our, <laughs> yes, um, well, we'll see how we do or how <laughs> you guys do specifically because I'm not participating because I'm doing the quiz which I wanted to do because I hate competition. So hope you guys do well. We'll fight for your amusement. (laughs) Dance monkey, dance. It was was a tough one to make the quiz for because boy, did a lot of things happen in this book. I tried to just hit the major ones. All right, number one. At the start of the book, Percy, Annabeth, Talia, and Grover are on a mission to recruit whom to Camp Half-Blood. Nico and Bianca D'Angelo. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. Plus one. Number two. Okay, so the gang succeeds in this mission, but they're attacked by a manticore called Dr. Thorne, and Annabeth falls off of a cliff into the sea and is assumed to be dead. But she is actually... She gets, like, kidnapped, and she somehow ends up in San Francisco. She has to hold up the sky in place of Atlas. Is that all you want? It doesn't seem like no, that's no, what no, you're no. That is yes. no. I, well, there's like it's like they're in that mountain in San Francisco, which I don't even know the name of. It's spelled O T H R Y S. So I think Orthrus. Orthrus. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I will give that to Andy. Number three, Artemis and her band of hunters arrive to help defeat the Manticore. Who are the hunters? 11 to 14 year old girls who follow Artemis around and hunt for monsters with their bows and arrows. Yep, that's correct. We'll get more into that later. Number four, Artemis goes on a mission to hunt a dangerous monster, um, but then she is also kidnapped by Atlas. How does Atlas trap Artemis? Oh, um, in celestial bronze chains. And she has to hold up the sky. Can you give more detail of how she was tricked to hold up the sky? He baits her with 
Annabeth because he knows that she can't resist helping a young maiden. So Annabeth was holding up this guy and then Artemis took her place willingly to rescue Annabeth. Even before that, it was Luke holding up the sky, and he had tricked Annabeth to take yeah. you. So it's like a cycle. Yeah, brutal. I'll split that between you two. Number five. Percy, Talia, Bianca, Grover, and Artemis's lieutenant, Zoe, go on a quest to rescue Annabeth and Artemis, all while being hunted by, quote-unquote, the general, Atlas. They fight four magical creatures on the way to San Francisco, Name those four creatures. Oh, the God. big lion. <laughs> the big lion. The skeleton guards. Yes. These are always tough because he truly just does throw like random monsters at them sometimes. He does. And they never matter again. Um, big lion, undead soldiers. Oh, the big metal thing that Hephaestus oh, made. Oh, yeah. Talos. Yeah. Talos. Rest in peace. <laughs> I, I never remembered the yeah. names. <laughs> and then... um. Laid on, I guess, like the big dragon. Well, I said on the way to San Francisco, so I didn't count that. Okay, I'll just tell you. The last one is the boar, the giant boar. Oh. Oh, the boar. The boar. Yeah. Summoned by the the call of the wild. Yeah, the god Pan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is why Grover has a caffeine addiction now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. We kind of got that. <laughs> we got there eventually. I'll just split it in <laughs> half again to just. Yeah. Keep cool. it simple. To keep the peace. <laughs> <laughs> I'll fight for those points. <laughs> Number six. They finally make it to San Francisco. Who is revealed to be Atlas's daughter and why was she banished? Zoe. She was banished from the, the dragon area because she betrayed her sisters and let Hercules into oh, the grove or whatever yeah. so he could steal their golden apples. That's right. God, I finished this book yesterday. <laughs> I should, yeah. should remember this better. <laughs> Well, that one will go to Hannah. Drat. Victory. Number seven. How does the team defeat Atlas? <laughs> they trick him into holding up the world again, which is very funny. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid Atlas. <laughs> if I were Atlas, I would not get within 20 feet of that <laughs> of that sky. Yeah. Well, that's really weird. It was like Percy was holding it and then Artemis just like... I couldn't even imagine what the book was saying happened. Yeah. It like basically just like swung him... Yeah, well, she, she, I guess, did she do, like, that thing where she slides, kind of like Indiana Jones, like, slides under the door at the last second? <laughs> Maybe that's what Percy did. Maybe. He yes. said he, like, flipped over backwards, and, <laughs> yeah. and then Atlas came rushing in. Yeah, I was having real trouble, like, visualizing <laughs> some of that stuff. It'll be choreographed in the TV show, I'm sure. Oh, I certainly hope. <laughs> yeah, in, like, ten years when the Titans Curse season comes out. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait. All right, number eight. After they defeat Atlas, they all go to Olympus, where the gods vote to prepare for war against the Titans. They also argue about how Talia and Percy are a danger to the gods because of the prophecy that we went over in the first couple books that says, like, one of the children of the three big gods, when they turn 16, will have the power to destroy Olympus. How does Talia remove herself from the prophecy at the end of the book? She joins the hunters. Oh, she joins the hunt. Yeah, so she'll never age. Yes, correct. Which, does that count? I don't know. <laughs> I think with, like, prophecies, it's kind of just, like, how you believe. Yeah, it's, like, vibes-based. It's all semantics. Yes, yeah. totally. All right, final question. At the end of the book, after Percy tells Nico about the death of Bianca, 
which I forgot to mention earlier, right? When they were, the team was fighting Talos, Bianca. Rest in peace. Rest in peace, perished. But when Percy is relaying this news to her brother, Percy discovers that Nico is the son of Hades. Hades. Love him. Yes. I, I knew that that was going to happen. I knew it was yeah. coming. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> did we spoil that for you or did you just figure that out? I think I just got a premonition like 50 pages before it actually happened just because like... I probably also spoiled at you from like minute one of the first book because <laughs> yeah. I was like, just you guys wait <laughs> until, <laughs> until the twist of book three. Yeah. Here it is now. <laughs> well, I just remember that everyone thought, everyone said that Nico was really great. He's my favorite character. <laughs> I forgot he was like 10 in this book. I was like, oh yes. boy. I did too. The edgiest too. character. <laughs> nope, he's just a fun little boy who loves his little magic cards. Yeah, just you wait. <laughs> yeah. Just you wait. Is that the end of the quiz? That is the end of the quiz. And now wow. I'm calculating the results. I'm not feeling good about this one for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think Hannah won. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. Oh. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. I'm gutted. <laughs> I must commit ritual seppuku. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't know it would end like this. <laughs> this time for sure. <laughs> While you do that, I'll take my little victory lap. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Careful not to slip on my entrails. We might end the world by mistake. <laughs> Are you the Ophiotaurus? No, don't sacrifice my entrails. Oh. <laughs> well, we didn't mention that part in the beginning of the quiz, but just for context... Another subplot was that there's this sea cow that apparently if you sacrifice it, you get the power to overthrow Olympus, which seems a little like Dave's Ex Machina, which I guess is its entire series. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's wrong with a little Deus Ex Machina? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of Deuses doing some Machinas around here. <laughs> there sure are. Well, okay. I, am very, I was very excited to start this episode because I feel like there was a lot of stuff going on in this book. Very interesting mm -hmm. ideas, perhaps controversial. So, Andy, why don't you start with like what the experience it was with you rereading it and what you liked? Well, so I always remembered this as my favorite book when I was a kid, and I didn't really remember why is the thing because I <laughs> I remember exclusively like the very broad strokes of these books um, and romanticized them in my mind. But rereading it, I, what I really enjoyed was kind of just like how different the tone was from the past two. It, it reminded me a lot of if we're talking about Harry Potter and we compare every kid's book to Harry Potter, which of course we must. But <laughs> it reminded me a lot of Goblet of Fire sort of vibes where everyone's starting to grow up and there's real sincere danger on the horizon that we weren't worried about in the same way before. Because this whole book is just, it's very, like, gloomy. It's very foreboding. It it does have, like, a sense of doom to it, which I think is really interesting. And I think it's a, it's a lot more mature than the past two books in that way. And I also just, I like how much bigger the world feels. Like, like we're starting to see things that we've seen before have, like, consequences, <laughs> I guess. Because before it was like, oh, we've got, like, a nice self-contained adventure and... Nobody from the outside like gets involved in it and none of it interacts with each other. But now we've got like two new characters who have like been in the Lotus Hotel for 80 years or however long. We've got like characters that we've known for a couple of years in completely new circumstances and meeting new people. And it just it makes the it makes the world feel a lot bigger, I think. 
Um, and I really, I really like that point that I think you hit in a lot of series where like now that we sort of get the point, like we get the bare bones basics, we're allowed to like really play with the world that we have. And I think that's really fun. Um, also Stan Nico. <laughs> yeah. Love Nico. Even, even in this one, and I'll say controversially, I even like him in this one. I like him in this one too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking of this book as like it feels very transitionary and it feels very mature because you even have like there's several different gods who like acknowledge Percy for the first time in this book. Like Artemis calls him a man instead of a boy and like Dionysus remembers his name for the first time and then like Poseidon like vouches for him and stuff. And then we have like two character deaths in this book. Yeah. That's something that I noticed too. It's like, this is the first time that another, well, I guess they're not technically human beings, whatever, but this, this is the first time like another human being has died. And that's always like a big point of transition in a kid's series. I agree with the comparison to the Goblet of Fire, because I think that this is also the book where things get angsty in the love <laughs> department, which is uh. what happens in the Goblet of Fire, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is like Percy realizing that he might have feelings for Annabeth and he's like angsting and there were some very interesting parallel undertones to all these different relationships because you know before we had heard about this friendship triangle with like Luke and Annabeth and Talia but now Percy he feels like he's like in a love triangle with Luke which I thought was really interesting. There's also the subplot of one of the characters having had a relationship with Hercules, Zoe, right? And being burned. And also Dionysus is like inserted like his own love story with Ariadne and her being betrayed by a hero, which, yeah, there are a lot of layers to that. Yeah, it's a lot of the themes of this book. I feel like for the first time, these kids are really having to deal with responsibility in a very real way because like they were always you know, in danger before and it was all like, ooh, hope we don't die. <laughs> but now it's like, well, if I die or if I don't die or whatever, there are like consequences in the world around me. And I felt like there was a little bit more of an introspection of what it means to be a hero yeah. and whether heroes in and of themselves are truly good because Hercules is painted as kind of like a douche who like abandoned Zoe, right? And Dionysus's whole rant to Percy was about how like his wife was abandoned by a hero. And so like Percy had to kind of work through in his mind, like being a hero doesn't mean being good. What I choose to do as a hero is what makes me good. Well, and they, they bring up at one point to the whole um, idea of like Percy's fatal flaw. Uh. I guess it's been revealed that his fatal flaw is like loyalty to the people that he cares about and how doing something heroic to save them could potentially be doing something villainous for the rest of the world, right? Like you'd sacrifice the entire world to save your friends. I, I agree with nuance, but when I first read it, I was kind of like, oh, that's like going to a job interview and being like, my greatest weakness is that I'm just too organized or I'm a too good at my job. Right. <laughs> I'm a perfectionist. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. Now that you've phrased it like that, it kind of makes me think of The Last of Us, which is a show that's happening right now. And I don't know if you're watching that, Andy. I know Chelsea is. No, I mostly just see all the pictures on Twitter. Uh, I watched the first episode, though, and I thought it was good. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, basically, there's this theme in The Last of Us where, like, the writers made it so the more people that you hurt, 
in order to protect the one person that you love, the worse your death will be in the end because you're acting selfishly, even if it is like a sympathetic sort of thing. I don't think that's going to happen in Percy Jackson. Well, (laughs) we'll find out, won't we? (laughs) Yeah, I guess we will. But that's an example of like loyalty being like a real fatal flaw. The main guy's body count is stacking up while he is protecting the little girl, Ellie. So you're kind of like, he can't kill all these people without consequences, right? That's really cool. (laughs) Maybe I continue watching the show now. We'll see. Maybe you do. Maybe I do. Maybe I do. I need to see at least the gay episode. Yeah. Episode three, best episode. I didn't even, I didn't see it, but I did see like, again on Twitter, like days and days of just gay screeching about it (laughs) and at a certain point like the gay screeching must be listened to it's like it's like the egg from say with me the goblet of fire (laughs) (laughs) or the sirens call from perhaps percy jackson yeah come seekers where our voices sound (laughs) yeah this is the goblet of fire recap podcast at the end of the day yes and a last of us promo podcast (laughs) yeah 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 yeah. please watch it on hbo at nine or whatever (laughs) pedro pascal (laughs) bella (laughs) ramsey A cast to die for. Yeah, and others. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> back to Percy Jackson. We can talk about the controversy now. Okay. Well, the part that I found most interesting about the book was that this book is kind of like, I thought the theme was like 100% about gender, which I was totally like not expecting that to be like what that book is about. And part of it, like we already mentioned before, is with this comparison to Hercules and like the way that male heroes have burned like their their female like romantic partners in the pursuit of fame or glory or whatever, uh, which I thought was, I think when I started this book, I'll, I'll go back. When I started this book, I thought that the message was not great with gender because of the introduction to the hunters, which like Hannah mentioned in the quiz, right? It's like these young girls, they're supposed to be like on the cusp of sullying themselves or whatever, you know, because they're about to like start falling in love with boys. And so Artemis is like, quote unquote, rescuing them from that fate by having them be committed to her instead. So that's where it started. And I was like, that doesn't seem like a great message. But then, I don't know, it kind of evolved into Percy really having to examine toxic masculinity in the Greek mythos. And I was like, wow, yeah, so I I don't know. What I always think is interesting too, and they're of course not going to talk about it in Percy Jackson in, you know, 2007, but a lot of times Artemis's hunters are like coded as um, like lesbians because it's like the ancient Greek definition of virginity or whatever is that you like haven't been like you haven't had sex with a man specifically so it's like you can get it with a whole bunch of ladies and it doesn't count (laughs) so I thought that was kind of interesting too with Bianca especially because I hate the thing that Bianca does at first where she's like yeah well I'm gonna abandon the only family I've ever known just for a bunch of girls that I don't know uh but at the same time too it's like you can kind of have a queer reading of that and be like well Maybe the family that's really my family is the one that I choose. You know, not that Nico is giving off like homophobic vibes, but <laughs> <laughs> but like the idea of like chosen queer family rather than like blood family. I also think that when Zoe dies, that whole exchange she has with Artemis it was very gay. Mm-hmm. So 
I was, I'm with you. Yeah, they're girlfriends. She had to, she had to earn that silver circlet by kissing Artemis on the cheek. <laughs> Cute goals. Cute, but very platonically, yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, they're just friends. They're just gal, gal pals. <laughs> History will remem- remember them yeah, as very good friends. As gal pals, yeah. <laughs> so we talked through like different interpretations, right, that you can have for the hunters, but I think it will help to give more context if we actually show the way that they're introduced. So we picked out a passage where they kind of explain the rules for being a hunter. The cast for this reading is Chelsea as Percy, me as Zoe, and Andy as Artemis. It is not the only way for a girl. Zoe said, I couldn't believe I was hearing this. Bianca, camp is cool. It's got a Pegasus stable and a sword fighting arena and... I mean, what do you get by joining the Hunters? To begin with, Zoe said, immortality. I stared at her, then at Artemis. She's kidding, right? Zoe rarely kids about anything, Artemis said. My Hunters follow me on my adventures. They're my maidservants, my companions, my sisters-in-arms. Once they swear loyalty to me, they are indeed immortal unless they fall in battle, which is unlikely, or break their oath. What oath? I said. To forswear romantic love forever. Artemis said. To never grow up, never get married, to be a maiden eternally. Like you? The goddess nodded. I tried to imagine what she was saying, being immortal, hanging out with only middle school girls forever. I couldn't get my mind around it. So you just go around the country recruiting half-bloods? Not just half-bloods, Zoe interrupted. Lady Artemis does not discriminate by birth. All who honor the goddess may join. Half-bloods, nymphs, mortals. Which are you, then? Anger flashed in Zoe's eyes. That is not thy concern, boy. The point is Bianca may join if she wishes. It is her choice. Bianca, this is crazy, I said. What about your brother? Nico can't be a hunter. Certainly not, Artemis agreed. He will go to camp. Unfortunately, that's the best boys can do. Hey, I protested. You can see him from time to time, Artemis assured Bianca. But you will be free of responsibility. He will have the camp counselors to take care of him. And you will have a new family. Us. A new family, Bianca repeated dreamily. Bianca, you can't do this, I said. It's nuts. She looked at Zoe. Is it worth it? Zoe nodded. It is. What do I have to do? Say this, Zoe told her. I pledge myself to the goddess Artemis. I, I pledge myself to the goddess Artemis. I turn my back on the company of men, accept eternal maidenhood, and join the hunt. Bianca repeated the lines. That's it? Zoe nodded. If Lady Artemis accepts thy pledge, then it is binding. I accept it. Artemis said. And the end. Another successful and flawless reading. (laughs) And you listeners will think that's so funny because we'll leave all the mistakes in. (laughs) Yeah, we'll see about that. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Those are the rules. Those are the rules. Yes. So when I was thinking about this, I was, or when I was reading this, I was thinking like, I can't believe that no one in the story would kind of point out how backwards and sexist it is because I think even, you know, the three of us, when we were in middle school, I know for a fact I would have thought about that. I would have been like, this is kind of sexist, you know? 
Uh, maybe that's like in our generation, like Gen Z thing that we are all social justice warriors or whatever. But I thought it was just crazy, maybe even unrealistic that none of the girls would say something about that or even Percy. Percy's not a fan, but not for the right reasons. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I guess it's like a undeveloped opinion. Yeah. Of like, I'm a boy and why don't they like me? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of really culty, too, because I think about like when like the kinds of people that cults target are people that feel very alone and have like no sense of community or anything. And then they're like promised they're promised like family. Right. Essentially. Uh... And it's really easy to just go to like a bunch of young girls yes. and be like, would you like a homely life? Would you like to live forever? No boys, no boys. No boys, no boys. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's weird. I don't know. I think when I read it when I was younger, I probably thought that it was really cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but that's kind of the problem, right? Because right. like, <laughs> it is like, it is very like, it's seductive. It's seductive. Yeah, yeah but it's like, why is it that not, having like romantic love or sexual love is what gives you immortality and like you are glowing constantly yeah. and you're beautiful and pure you know right. i know it made me think of in fact the golden compass because i was like what why does it have to be maidens and they're like 11 to 14 which honestly is like prime pu puberty years so i don't think they would even not care about like romantic love at that point and that's why but like you know, in the Golden Compass, there's this big importance on, like, childhood and, like, the purity of childhood and, like, your demon that you get, like, can change to any form and, like, you have some kind of magical energy that the villains want to exploit you for. And, like, why do they have that magical energy? It seems to be something to do with, like, not having sex yet. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Which is very strange. It's like, every girl is born with a precious flower that <laughs> she may lose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess Rick, Rick, sorry, Rick Riordan. There we go. <laughs> again, deprogramming years of <laughs> years of Riordan. Um, yeah, but he's not like I guess prepared to take down the institution of virginity in in this children's <laughs> book. But... Well, I mean, I was kind of thinking about it. Like, what is a way that you can include this obviously important part of the mythology while still like critiquing it or you know thinking about it more deeply? Um, I don't think it's a problem that he included it, but I think the messaging around it is a little bit mixed. Obviously, the place where the book ends is not like girls who choose to do this are like better than the girls who choose to just to be heroes or like to be half-bloods or whatever. And there is this nuanced analysis of like masculinity and all that stuff. Like on the one hand, that's good. But then the other is that I don't think there's enough resistance for the right reasons of other characters in the book, right? Because right. there, there are people who don't like the hunters, but it's just like for stupid reasons. And maybe he thought of that as like a kid's way of like thinking through these issues. But I think kids are smarter than that, or at least middle schoolers are. I think we as middle schoolers would have thought of these things about gender. So I wish that there was more of that analysis in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let me tell you about the rabbit hole I went down. <laughs> Searching up things about the hunters and seeing what Rick Riordan now believes versus what he believed in 2007. Ooh. Oh, okay. <laughs> Come on, journalism. 
Yeah, a little bit. I went on Reddit and Twitter. That was my journalism. Mm, well, it's a lot of people's journalism these days. These days. These days, these kids. These days. Yeah. But basically another problem, you know, that I was thinking about the hunters was that it's pretty gender essentialist too, which I guess yeah. we kind of talked about. But like the whole thing of like, boys are icky, only girls. But then it's like, what would you do about a trans girl? What would you do about a trans boy? who might have joined the hunters while thinking that he was a girl. Those sort of questions as well. And I found out <laughs> that in the mythology, there's actually two instances of perhaps LGBT-coded people joining the hunters. And one of them is this person called Siproitus, who was a little boy who accidentally saw Artemis bathing. And so she was like, either I'll kill you or I'll turn you into a girl. And he was like, okay, turn me into a girl. Yes, yes. please, yes, please. <laughs> and so then she turned him into a girl and then let her join the hunters. So perhaps that's an instance of a trans girl in mythology yeah. joining the hunters. Wow. And then the other one was this prince who was the son of Theseus. And his name is Hippolytus, I believe. His deal was that he didn't like... Aphrodite because he was an asexual aromantic king. <laughs> he didn't like romantic love. He didn't like sexual love. He was completely uninterested and grossed out by it. And Aphrodite was like, screw you. I hate asexual aromantic kings. And she was like, I want to get your father to kill you. And so he did. <laughs> and so then the guy died. But then Artemis was like, this guy was an asexual aromantic king. I'm going to bring him back to life. And so she did and let him join the hunters. Oh. So... There's an instance of a boy joining the hunters. And apparently also Orion joined the hunters at some point. Like, Orion the constellation. Oh. <laughs> so, huh. it's not as gender essentialist as perhaps it was portrayed in 2007. And also, the other rabbit hole I went down was, I found a Reddit post of a now-deleted Twitter thread <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> from Rick Riordan, okay. <laughs> where somebody tweeted that they believe that Artemis accepts trans girls going into the hunt and also is their patron, and then that she also hunts transphobes for fun. And then Rick Riordan quote tweeted it and said, I completely support the first statement. I can neither confirm nor deny the second, but it does sound like something Artemis would do. So there you go. <laughs> Obsessed. Yeah. Well, that that is a very interesting thing to think about. And I'm not, I'm not a scholar, you know, I don't know. I don't know everything, but I... I wonder how like different the the like gender system was in ancient Greece because in all of these stories because there are several stories of like women being like warriors being hunters um, outside of Artemis's hunt and they're like marginalized in the way that's like oh a girl's not allowed to do that but it's also almost kind of like they're a completely separate like gender all on their own based on like what's expected of them and what they want and what they can do like it's i don't know it's very it's very loosey-goosey but i think that's kind of interesting and if i knew more about it as a greek myth scholar <laughs> then i would have a more better formed opinion about it yeah the only thing i can say is a person who took one class called sex and gender in ancient greece and okay, dragos yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah no honestly i don't really remember that much other than i think Greece as like a nation or whatever was really just like a bunch of different like city-states right so I think it's hard to know exactly what actually went on in Greece and what the myths meant to the people because right. like I'm pretty sure in Athens like it was much more strict that 
women couldn't do like basically anything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, obviously in like Sparta or maybe other places, that was not the case. Right. So, Hannah, you had some rabbit holes, but I also went on a rabbit hole because another gender thing that happened in this book was, well, Artemis is introduced, but so is Apollo. And something that he said rang a bell in my mind of something I'd heard before. It's really interesting, right? Because Artemis is portrayed as this like eternal ethereal, pure girl, but then Apollo is like a player. And when Apollo meets Talia, he says something like, you used to be a tree, didn't you? Glad you're back. I hate it when pretty girls turn into trees. Man, I remember one time. And then Artemis interrupts him. That rang a bell. And what I remembered was that there's this myth where there's a nymph named Daphne and Apollo sees her and falls in love with her. And then basically just like chases her down to like, you know, do bad things to her. And he almost catches up with her, but then she begs a river god, who is her father, I think, to turn her into a tree. And then she's turned into the laurel tree. And that's like the origin myth of the laurel tree and how it's related to Apollo and stuff like that. So I just thought that that was crazy that he like referenced it in this book, because that's like the fact that like Apollo is like a predator (laughs) who like preys on young supposedly pure girls gave me the ick yeah I mean there's that there's that whole weird thing where in this book where it's like oh well a woman a a woman protects her precious flower and a man is someone who will take it from her by any means necessary like that is that weird like gender essentialist thing that I feel like was kind of popular in like feminist rhetoric at around this time when it was published I don't know I don't want to like I feel like every time I come on this podcast I like risk (laughs) cancellation (laughs) I risk my safety on the internet but (laughs) but it's like you know it was in the early 2000s it was pretty popular to be like oh truly like all men are evil and disgusting and rapists and should die I think you're onto something because again another reading Maybe not that Riordan is saying this, but with the trauma that is included of like Zoe and Ariadne, like being burned by men, the feminist, maybe old school feminist take of the hunters is like, these are women who are traumatized by their experiences with men who like are banding together to swear off men. So that is like a kind of empowering take. The queer take is obviously like, like a more nuanced, less sexist take of their whole thing. But it is not great painting men with a, a broad brush like that. Going back to our whole like biological essentialist thing, it's like like femininity and masculinity are not things that are like performed and expected of people, but like something that they are inherently. And, and again, like I feel like in a lot of ways, that's kind of how we were in the early 2000s. Like that was the discourse. <laughs> Because I don't think that Rick Riordan was trying to, like, make a really huge statement about it. And we've said that about a lot of things that he's <laughs> he's put in these books. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, at the end of the day, this was published during the Bush administration. <laughs> and we have to keep that in mind. <laughs> you know? I think his actual intent was just to include the hunters in some way as, like, a thing that the little girls who read his book could also, yeah. like, imagine. Yeah. Like... Either you guys get more options. Isn't that cool? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you could either join the Hunters or you can go to Camp Half-Blood. Either way, pretty cool, right? Yeah. You're welcome. And I, yeah, that's probably why the 
girls and the hunters are like 11 to 14 year olds because that's his audience. Right. It was definitely just supposed to be a harmless like girl boss sisterhood thing. Yeah. And then Percy is like, I feel like Percy grappling with the idea of this like exclusionary club might also be required in grappling with like <laughs> the implications of the exclusionary club right. throughout the whole book. Chelsea, any hot takes? Yeah. Would you like to put yourself at risk on the internet? <laughs> I don't know. I was just confused because I, okay, like just in the beginning when I was reading all this stuff and especially like the reference to Apollo, I was like, why? Yeah. <laughs> like, I thought I was not going to like the rest of the book, but it it really just became a lot more complicated as the book went on. I don't know. Like maybe you can connect all the dots together with like Percy trying to contend with the burden of his gender and like. Because uh, the the hunters do admit that they're wrong, you know, like at the end. Not all men. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Talia says something that's like, when Zoe's dying, Talia's like, you were so right about men. And then Zoe was like, not all men. And then she looks at Percy. Yeah, and then so, dies. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That part was kind of funny to me. <laughs> <laughs> they come to, I guess, like, an, like more in the middle where it's like the hunters, they are portrayed as like they have legitimate trauma, I guess of the experiences of their gender but they come to accept that like men as like a whole idea is not bad i guess and then percy is also like contending with the harm that his gender has done right yeah like the the experience that the hunters have had with masculinity is not universal and like percy seeing that same masculinity be like honestly like the gender role of a hero like a greek hero right and him choosing like a better way anyway that's cool i also think it was interesting that annabeth was interested in joining the hunters and then percy was like no i know <laughs> yeah that was that was really wild i did not remember that from the first time i read it i did not remember that at all i didn't remember a lot of things that happened in this book <laughs> somehow <laughs> yeah. it's like reading it for the first time all over again I will say one more thing that is completely unrelated to the rest of this discussion that I thought was cool is that this is the first book where Percy's actually not the main character and it's really refreshing. <laughs> like, he's not the most important person uh, in the book at all. Like, it's either Talia or honestly Zoe. Uh, and I think that's fun. You know what? You're right. Yeah. Like, Percy was not yeah. invited on the quest. <laughs> yeah, because this is the girl boss book. This book is for the girls. This is a book for the girls. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I am really excited to get to the ratings because I, I'm curious to see where this lands. Because uh, we we've said a lot of things, but I feel like we haven't, besides Andy, haven't revealed much about how much we like the book. But first, what is our rating system? Ophio Tauruses. I don't want to say that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, mytho magic figures. Oh. French manticores. <laughs> French manticores. Uh, rubber rats. Rubber rats. Rubber rats. <laughs> I like rubber rats. <laughs> yeah, let's go with that then, because that really tickles Andy's fancy. <laughs> and for those of you that have read the book, which I'm assuming everyone has at this point, you will know. <laughs> you might have. You might have remembered the rubber <laughs> it's rat. It's just obscure enough that you may have forgotten about it <laughs> until just now. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we get into it. I can go first because I have thoughts fresh on my mind. I'm going to give this book, I think, 4.3 rubber rats out of 5. I I really like this book a lot better than the first two books, I will say. And I think that's because I found more of the jokes funny, first of all. <laughs> there was that whole part where they were at the Hoover Dam and they kept 
like calling things damn, like damn food. <laughs> and I was like, this is actually very yeah. funny. And how they laughed. How they and laughed. How they, and how I laughed. Because <laughs> yeah. I was like, this is totally something we would do in middle school. Yeah. Like crack up because you're calling things damn. Oh, yeah. And also I liked, yeah, how it fulfilled some of the stuff that was set up in the earlier books like Ares cursing Percy's sword to like fail the moment he needed it most and then that happened when he was fighting Atlas and this book also set up a bunch of intrigue for the future books like introducing Rachel Elizabeth Dare who I remember for some reason really well from this series. yeah we didn't even talk about her Ugh. there's not much to say about her in this book but she was certainly there yeah <laughs> and she I believe she becomes important later yeah, so listeners, remember the name. Rachel Elizabeth Dare, all three yeah. names. Yeah. And they set up, like, Pan's return. There's that really epic scene yes. where Grover senses Pan, and then they start getting attacked, and Grover is, like, super entranced by the the feeling of Pan being there. Yeah. The rubber rat comes alive the and runs rat. into the wood. The rubber rat. The rubber rat. <laughs> that seed. That's cold vibes right there. Oh, yeah. The the awakening that Grover felt. Yes. That's cold vibes. Yeah. I think it's more fun now. <laughs> I thought it was epic. Yeah. Yeah. Any cult where there's like go- goats involved. <laughs> Always a good time. Honestly work. Like obsessed. Yeah. I, I like the battle scenes and I really liked, I figured out I like the system where they put a prophecy at the beginning of the book and then you're like, What's going to happen? Because you kind of know everything that's going to happen from the prophecy, but you don't because it's so vague. And I also didn't remember anything in this book except for Bianca dying. So I was like, what's going to happen? What does this mean? (laughs) So that was cool. I think it was quite a good book. So I am on the same vibe train as Hannah. I don't remember what I gave the second book or the first book for that matter, but I would estimate that I... Would I should give this a four out of five rubber rats. Sure. And if I somehow rated one of the first two books above that, well, that's not correct because this one <laughs> is definitely the best book so far. I just thought all the gender stuff was super interesting. And while it didn't maybe hit the mark messaging wise, I was very captivated by it. I don't know. I just felt myself when I was reading like racing to the end like I wanted to know what happened I agree with Hannah that like I really I like you know having the prophecy and seeing how it actually gets fulfilled even though I guess it was still episodic like meeting all these different monsters and just like a series of different locations it felt a lot more tied together and like you guys were saying earlier that actions have consequences and I was not expecting Bianca to actually die because they said that Annabeth was dead you know and and then Luke, they also said was dead at the end, but then both of those turned out not to be true. So I was kind of like, nobody really dies, but Bianca really did die. <laughs> and yeah, I just I just enjoyed it. Like I wanted to keep reading. So this is a pleasant surprise for me, given how horrendously it started with the hunters <laughs> and everything. But yeah, four out of five, rubber rats. Well, I, as I think I've made pretty clear through the entirety of this <laughs> podcast, would like to give it a five out of five rubber rats. Um, honestly, six if I'm allowed. Uh, I love <laughs> I love this book so much. One of the hallmark chapter books of my childhood, and I truly like. I enjoyed it just as much the second time around. I think the biggest difference that this book has out of any of the Percy Jackson books 
Rick Riordan's very basic structure, right? Like once we're out on the road and we have the quest, it's like monster, character beat, monster, character beat, monster, and then we're there, <laughs> we're, we're done. And I think where he really succeeds this time is one, much better character beats, and two, really blending those character beats with the encounters. And it feels a lot smoother than I feel like it usually does. The interpersonal relationships are great. The way that we're like reaching through, <laughs> this is gonna sound dramatic, reaching through time is very interesting. I think it's so cool that there are two kids from the 40s that now like exist in the store. Well, one, rest in peace, Bianca. Uh, rest in peace. But, <laughs> but I just, I just think it's, it's a really, really wonderful turn for the series. And I think that the best parts of the next two books are directly possible because of this book and the risks that we take in this one. So yeah, I love it. It's, it's a favorite. Five out of five. Go, Mr. Riordan. Yeah. <laughs> I still maintain he only gets better and better. Okay. I was trying to think if I had any predictions. Oh, yeah. That I think is going to happen next. But honestly, I don't know. Other than Annabeth and Percy are going to get together or whatever. I am really itching. We'll see. I am itching to read the next book. We'll see. I cannot imagine that... That's not going to happen. Like, that's... Yeah. Well, we'll certainly see. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> if there's one thing that we're going to do, it's see. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's the only prediction yeah, yeah, that we yeah, will yeah. see. Well, I guess, yeah, you guys can't make predictions because you already know. I mean, I've forgotten so many things. Yeah. I, I was wondering, I was trying to rack my brain as to why Rachel Elizabeth there is important the other day. And I think I figured it out. But of course, I'm not going to say that. But no. But we will allude to it in a silly little way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I barely remember how it ends. So it's yeah. just as much a surprise for me. <laughs> I will say this this next book is going to be a very exciting episode because this is the one I remember the least about. Mm. Uh, so... It's the penultimate. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I remember like two things and I don't feel like they're the important things. So we're going to... um. We're gonna have a fun little time. It'll be like we're all reading it like new, except for Hannah, who probably remembers more than I do. But <laughs> but other than that. Well, wild prediction. I'll just throw it out there. Grover dies. Let's Ooh. see what happens. If he dies, Percy will die because they have the empathy link. We'll see. Oh. But we'll, well see. I didn't know remember that. Yeah. Tune in next time to see if Grover dies. <laughs> <laughs> and what else will we see? The next book that we're reading for the podcast. <laughs> Next time, we're diverting from Percy Jackson for a little bit to do another author interview with Michelle Lamb with her book, Mish the Bad Demon. That's so cool. And then we'll get right back into Percy Jackson after that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, excited to see you again, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you guys for having me on again, by the way. I had a lovely time. It's always a pleasant time. I always like to say hi. <laughs> and now we're going to say bye. Oh, goodbye. <laughs> What an excellent transition. Yeah. <laughs> Goodbye, all. Bye. 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 Bye.